I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up next on The Trade Guys, we'll talk Africa trade, we'll talk WTO reform, and we'll talk about EVs, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're back after a couple weeks off. It is good to be back with both of you. I wanted to start with something we don't typically talk about, which is trade with Africa. Scott, what do we have here? What's the administration's current approach to trade policy in Africa? Well, there were some announcements from the State Department this week. Uh, Secretary Blinken traveled there and met regarding sort of the continental approach to deepening trade ties with the United States. It's a very interesting and difficult problem. It's interesting because in the United States, because of the prominent figures, African-Americans in public policy in general, but international policy, have always seen sort of a pan-African consciousness that would be great to take advantage of. So there's, there's a lot of positive feelings for trade with Africa throughout the political sphere. And it's, it's about as bipartisan an issue as is out there when it comes to trade policy. That's the good news. The bad news is Africa is actually quite far away from the United States. And from a trade in goods standpoint, a lot of things that the United States would export to Africa are things Europe also exports to Africa. And because of their proximity and longer commercial relations, Europe tends to be the preferred customer there. So the preferred supplier, depending on which side of the transaction you're on. So there's been more interest in trade than there has been actual trade. In addition, the United States has really since the George W. Bush administration has approached Africa country by country or economy by economy. The Bush 43's administration did free trade agreements with, say, Morocco, as well as a few in the, uh, in the, the Gulf region. And that's been OK. But Africa, the real challenge is, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, the real challenge is removing the internal barriers. And so this is when they call a whole of Africa solution. I think that's definitely where the economic gains are. Keep in mind, it's a huge continent. It has relatively few natural navigation routes or infrastructures within within the continent. Well, there's the Nile and the Blue Nile, but there's nothing like really the Mississippi and Missouri system that allowed the countries to link up with the areas of a giant continent to be linked with one another commercially throughout time. Africa, believe it or not, despite its huge uh, size, has less coastline, fewer miles of coastline than Europe does. It just it's the way geographically it's, it presents itself. So there's always been sort of infrastructure challenge. But because Africa's individual economies have barriers between them, that complicates the challenge. So always the first thing to work on is usually trying to eliminate the intracontinental barriers rather than the ones between the United States, say, and uh, Africa. Now, there's broad political support for, for the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, which is a preference program. Uh, it was- We call uh, that AGOA, right? AGOA, that's right. Yeah. It was authorized and then extended, and it, but it expires in 2025. So the real question is, what do you do? It's met with some not overwhelming success, partly because of these very challenges 
sort of the physical infrastructure and the proximity challenges. But it's uh, I'm glad we're talking about it. And so we'll have to see what happens. But individual country trade agreements are probably not as valuable to the continent as something that links the uh, economies within the continent. So like the U.S. and Kenya agreed earlier this summer to launch a trade investment initiative. But what you're suggesting is this is something the United States should seek with the broader African Union instead. That would be my preference. Once again, I've never met a trade agreement I didn't like. Uh, so yeah, any liberalization is, is better than opposed none, to the so. current administration, which has not, has yet to find one that it likes. That's correct. <laughs> I think they may be boxing themselves in here a little bit. First, I just want to go back to the beginning and note that, that Andrew was away for a couple of weeks, but the trade guys were not. Uh, and <laughs> okay, and yeah. we are like the Postal Service, not the Postal Service in my neighborhood, which is idiosyncratic at best. But we are there, rain or shine, commenting away, even when you're in Malibu. So right. just- <laughs> you, you guys, I forgot that you guys carried the torch, and I apologize for not listening. I was spending much time listening to the waves breaking, so you'll have to forgive me. You should have been listening to us. We were there in, in yeah. spirit. Yeah. Anyway, the administration, it's a little bit odd. They have not reflected a lot of enthusiasm for renewing a GOA. One of the things that's happened with OGOA, which is predictable because it happens with all trade agreements, is that you there are beneficiaries here and there, and they have a significant investment in its continuation because they're benefiting from it. You know, trade channels have started up. Uh, one of the things that OGOA permits, which other agreements have not, is peril imports, which has been which has been significant. And so you've got vested interests here and there that want it renewed. The administration has not climbed aboard the let's renew it early train, which a number of politicians and beneficiaries have been arguing, listen, don't wait till 2025. Let's do it now because you want to create some certainty as far as future investment is concerned, which is sensible. The administration has been fuzzy about that. But likewise, they've been very cautious about doing anything bilaterally. They've announced the single Kenya foray that, that Andrew mentioned. But here, like all of our other forays, there's no market access on the table, which leaves people wondering exactly what it is they're going to do. Yeah, that's the thing. If there's no market access, what is there? Well, that's what the Kenyans are asking, and it's a question that remains to be answered. Uh, I think if you look at other initiatives like the Indo-Pacific framework or the UK, it's let's reach agreement on labor standards, on the environment, on standards for digital trade. Uh, let's reach agreement on, on anti-corruption. I think what you're going to get, particularly from African countries, is, you know, why should we take all those steps that are good for you, but don't have any immediate benefit for us? And I think the American answer is, well, they have long-term benefit from you because they integrate you into the market-based system more effectively. And that's true. But I think if you're an African leader who's focused on uh, how do I create more jobs and feed more people next week, that doesn't really ring up the cash register for them. So I'm not sure how far this is going to get. If you think about the whole of Africa approach, which is what the Secretary General of the Africa Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, the AFCFTA, argued for, you run into the problem that I think we discussed on one other occasion here, which is while there's not a lot of infrastructure that promotes trans-African internal trade, there are a number of customs unions that operate 
in mm-hmm. West Africa, in East Africa, and Southern Africa, all sub-Saharan, in which the various countries have gotten together and agreed to form customs unions, which means a common external tariff and no internal tariffs. That, I think, has been helpful to growth in the region, but it's not helpful if you come in from the outside and try to cut a deal with one of the members because they're obligated to make deals that apply to everybody in the customs union. So by negotiating with one, you create kind of a dilemma. The Trump administration started this with Kenya and never really got beyond that because Kenya belongs to, I think, several of these regional groupings. So we'll see you know, how far the, the Biden folks get with it, but there are a lot of obstacles to it. At the same time, the continent is lurching forward. The joke has been, you know, it's the wave of the future, but it's been the wave of the future for 25 years. And it never quite gets there, but you're talking about an entire continent where the average age is 19. Okay, compare that to Germany where it's 49. Wow. Uh, I think that in the United States, where I think we're in the low 40s, we're not at mm-hmm. the German stage right now. So it, it clearly, you've got enormous amounts of energy. Enormous I wish I was people. in the low 40s. <laughs> I'd settle, at this point, I'd settle for the low 50s myself. But, um, although, you know, what they, you know what they say, Andrew, you know, 70 is, is the new 50, 50 is the new 30, uh, yep. 30 is the new 12. That's what they say, but I, I'm not sure I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it definitely doesn't feel that way. No, no, no. But the point Bill's making is an interesting one, which because you think back to our, our old friend, departed former trustee, Bill Brock. When Bill Brock oh, yeah. was U.S. trade representative, trade agreements were all about market access. And then there were many complaints about why not labor, why not the environment. And, and here we are roughly 30 years or so later. Now they're about everything but market access. So I'm not sure how we manage that, but that seems to be where we are. The other issue is these things seem to be rolling out very, very slowly. And this is a concern I've I expressed this in my column, and I've told this to USTR people. You know, you get judged by what you finish, not by what you start in the trade business. And they're not leaving themselves much time to finish these things. Trade agreements take sometimes years to accomplish, and rolling one out now two months before the midterms, I'm skeptical about how far they're, they're going to get, even with the best of intentions uh, amongst all the parties. Well, we'll have to keep watching that one. As Scott said, he there's, he's never met a trade agreement he doesn't like. Let's switch to something Bill thinks about a lot, and that's the WTO. And I'm not sure if Bill ever likes anything with the WTO, but now that the dust is settled on MC12 in June, let's talk more about the systemic reform of the WTO. What are the main proposals for reform, Bill, and how do they differ? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the WTO, so I, I will spare you any anti-WTO rants. But you're right. One of the issues that got put aside during the ministerial uh, deliberately and with all parties agreeing was structural reform. It's now back. The United States has at least rhetorically climbed aboard that particular train and said that it's ready to do that. I think most of the other countries will tell you that it's been the United States that's been blocking meaningful reform, at least as far as dispute resolution is concerned, probably since 2015. So for at least seven years, it's the U.S. that's been getting in the way. It was the U.S. that essentially forced the end of the upper level of dispute resolution, the appellate body. 
The U.S. argues it did that for good reasons, and I happen to believe they're right. They do have good reasons. The appellate body went off the tracks, but we've been really slow in trying to fix it, you know, and the Trump mantra was until everybody starts thinking about the problem the same way we're thinking about the problem, there's no point in talking about fixing it. And that's what the the Biden administration has sort of been saying as well. It sounds like now they're saying we're now ready to start talking about it. And so the question is then, what are you going to do about it? The United States had a list of problems that it identified. There were a bunch of small ones, mostly involving the the old appellate body not following its own rules, uh, which is why I thought the U.S. had a good case. Hmm. The body was supposed to finish its work in 90 days, and they rarely did. Uh, there was a controversy over what to do with members whose terms had expired, but were in the middle of a case. Did they get to finish or not. I mean, a bunch of weedy things like that that could probably have been negotiated. But the fundamental issue, which is coming back full force right now, is what do you want this group to do? And the United States has taken, I guess you'd say, a, a strict constructionist point of view. And there's the analogy is to look at our be- debate over the Supreme Court, where you've got, you know, some people, uh, the, the literalists, saying that, you know, the the decision should be based on the literal reading of the Constitution. And you shouldn't be looking at what, try to figure out what they intended. And you shouldn't look at legislative history of what Congress said ought to be done. You should look at the words that actually became law. And you should look at the words that are in the Constitution. And you shouldn't be go beyond that. That's exactly what Ambassador Lighthizer said the appellate body at the WTO was failing to do. And that was entirely consistent with the Trump conservative legal philosophy. It was a little bit odder for the Obama administration to take the same view because they were appointing Supreme Court justices or nominating Supreme Court justices that had a different view. But at least with Trump, it was consistent. The issue is that the EU has consistently taken the opposite view, which is essentially that the dispute resolution process needs to be evergreen. It needs to be evolving with the times. And the job of the appellate body is to basically interpret the law and fill in the gaps that the negotiators left when they set all of this up in the Uruguay round in 1994. That is the opposite of what the United States has said. And if you look at recent statements by commission, European Commission officials, that hasn't changed on their end. They want a dispute resolution policy that basically makes new laws and fills in gaps And the United States, in three administrations, two Democrats and one Republican, has said that's not what they want. And it's not clear to me how far they're going to get when you actually get down to the details of trying to reform things, because that fundamental vision remains. Scott, you have thoughts, maybe? Yes, I'm pessimistic about the uh, odds of an international organization like the WTO reforming itself. I can't think of a time when that's happened. The things that start off as a cause become a program and sooner or later descend into a racket. Now, I'm not sure where we are on that scale for, for the WTO, but its main purpose, the reason the member economies set it up was to create ongoing trade negotiations, which has completely failed at, by and large, since its inception. And it had a functioning sort of judicial branch, the appellate body and uh, dispute settlement understanding. Uh, which was effective for a while at holding things together. But because of the lack of negotiations and what appears to me now to be the lack of interest in negotiations by some of the big traders, 
I don't know how it, we, I don't know how you actually get to reform from here. So I, I'm a bit skeptical. I'm concerned because it still has its body of institutional respect, which is important in times like this. Uh, and we have big problems ahead of us. I'm I'm still very concerned about how much food is going to become a pivotal issue in countries. Food security is I'm expecting to be a major issue for the next 12 months in a lot of places. And uh, it's some place where you would like a functioning trade body. I don't know what to, how to get there, though. Well, I, I don't agree with you that it's been a failure. Uh, I would say it's been a disappointment. But they did manage to do the trade facilitation agreement, which is not meaningless and which I think is in, having an increasingly significant impact on speeding up customs procedures, eliminating red tape, and saving governments on both sides of transactions. A lot of money. I attended a presentation on this the other day, and it was actually fairly impressive what they've been able to accomplish, even though not everybody is meeting their obligations yet. But even at the most recent ministerial in June, they managed to squeeze out a fisheries agreement. They managed to squeeze out a vaccine waiver. I mean, like it or not, and I didn't like it, it nevertheless was something that that was a multilateral agreement. The fisheries agreement was short of what it needed to be, but it wasn't zero. I, I think there's hope there. The issue with the appellate body has been, and, and Lighthizer said it well, has been that, that countries were attempting to achieve by litigation what they were unable to achieve by negotiation. Mm -hmm. And I think where Scott is right is if we can get them back to negotiating outcomes, then dealing through the appellate body becomes a little bit less important. But I think there's a, it sounds like the U.S. is about to be ready to actually have a discussion about how to structure the appellate body. I mean, we'll see if they're sincere in that, but they've indicated a willingness. And one, as I recall, one of the things that came out of the ministerial was a commitment to get started on that issue and to have something by the next ministerial, although it's not entirely clear if that'll be one year away or two years away. So, you know, things are beginning to move in WTO fashion very slowly. Look, here we have Bill Ryan looking at the bright side. Can you believe it? <laughs> let, me, let me first revise my grade from F to D plus based on Bill's comments. Oh, there you go. That's, <laughs> but, that's it, generous. And I don't want to degrade. Hey, that's uh, passing. Working. It has been done. And that's a passing grade. I'll take it. I still have my concerns for the future. All right. Well, we're going to keep talking about the WTO because it is Bill's favorite subject. So we'll keep talking about that. Not going to go away. And if anybody out there wants to fund us to conduct a deeper in-depth study of WTO reform, we'd be very interested in doing that. <laughs> There's a shameless plug. Okay. Yes. Well, you have so, to work them in however you can. Yeah. Let's put everybody else on. Let's put everybody on notice that if they want to fund a project about WTO, this is the place to do it. We actually had a company that wanted to do that. And it was great fun to do it. And the, the question they asked, which I was, I thought was insightful was, uh, this was during Trump. So it was, uh, not unusual. What would happen if we withdrew? Yeah. And that was a good question to study. And I was wondering why would an individual company care about that? I thought it was a good sign, but it turned out it was a company that makes things that benefit from one of the WTO subsidiary agreements. The Information Technology Agreement, which was a zero tariff agreement for high tech, basically, information technology. And they were concerned that if we got out of the WTO, that would mean we got out of the agreement, which would make all their products more expensive. So it was an interesting example of a practical effect of the WTO having on individual companies. I was energized by that. Interesting. So did they end up funding a study? Yes. Wow. A couple of years ago when we did it, it was great. It was 
We looked at different scenarios, which was the withdrawal, reform, or status quo stumbling along. We talked about the implications of each of them. It was- that is the value of a CSIS independent, intellectually honest, and bipartisan study. Well said. That's what she did. Sounds like our website. <laughs> you know, I wonder why. <laughs> Our new website, by the way, is going to be ready sometime in October, and I promise everybody's going to love it. Speaking of things we love, let's talk about electric vehicles, okay? There are some rising costs that are just getting out of control with these electric vehicles. What the heck is going on, guys? Well, look, a lot of things are getting more expensive. We've talked about energy costs and their effect on consumer prices and producer prices on several occasions here. In fact, most of the tapering off of growth in inflation in both the consumer price index and the producer price index this month versus July, which is just reported, versus the month of June, most of that is is because of lower energy costs. You know, we talk about this a lot, but the components that make an electric car also have gotten more expensive to produce, whether it's the lithium for batteries or any other component. Manufacturers are struggling with this. Uh, They're trying to make the cars as affordable as they can. But here, Congress is stepping in in a way that may or may not work. For me, that's what I'm interested in, which is they've created a new $7,500 subsidy in the the bill that has just passed the Senate. But to qualify for it, you need to source materials either domestically or, I guess, from a free trade partner. There's sort of a North American assembly requirement. If there were any budget hawks left in Washington, someone would have observed this. But what you have is a new subsidy for electric vehicles, which no existing electric vehicle is able to claim. So we're going to save a lot of federal subsidy money by having it apply to vehicles that can't be purchased. Yeah, because nobody can get an EV. It's impossible, right? Well, yes. The fact that there are a few with waiting lists. So the Ford F-150 Lightning is one where actually there's quite a bit of consumer interest that has created a waiting list. But Ford just announced, because of higher costs, a price increase, a substantial price increase. But you also have problems on the other end. Let's say you need a lithium to build a lithium battery. That's kind of logical. Well, it turns out the Saudi Arabia of lithium is in Chile, mm. which is a free trade partner of the U.S. So practically, you could, you could see this subsidy working as described in the bill. However, the Chilean court, I believe, decided, according to the Wall Street Journal, that development of mining operations has to be stopped. And so you know, it's, it's not easy to see how a subsidy that's going to be available, I guess, a reconciliation bill, so that gives it 10 years of operation. Maybe the first five years, we won't have a vehicle anywhere available that, it, that actually qualifies for the subsidy. Uh, Bill may have figured this out well in my absence, but it, it looks weird to me. It's odd. Keep in mind, this does not mean you can't get a car. It, oh, means, yeah, right. you, it means you can't get a tax credit that will make your car cheaper. You okay, can't get well, bucks. Here, here's yeah. the thing you really can't do. You can't buy a Ford Lightning F-150 for $100,000. That's really <laughs> expensive. Yes. Well, my gosh. I was thinking more about cars than trucks. I mean, the, 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 the Ford 150 has proved to be exceptionally popular. And that's what this is what happens in a market economy. Eventually, there will be equilibrium will be restored, but it's going to take a while. I think what I've been concerned about is what Scott referred to, which is the creation of a standard for the credit that nobody can meet which raises the question of why are you doing this? I think the answer from the proponents is we need to have a domestic supply chain or a friend-shored supply chain. Chile would be a friend. 
the other popular location for lithium production is China, which is not in the friend category. Uh, and they also, I think, have something like 70 plus percent of lithium processing capability. If you get into the lithium business, just using that as an example, and there's a lot of different minerals involved here. Basically, you know, you mine lithium by processing an enormous amount of dirt for a very small amount of lithium dust or ore. Now, you don't need very much, but you have to go through a lot of dirt to get there. And the process, the doing of that, the processing of it is a dirty, messy, polluting business that developed countries have historically been content to leave to developing countries, which is part of the, part of the reason why we are where we are now. I think the, the proponents say this will promote onshoring, reshoring, friendshoring. It'll force everybody not to rely on China. One of the conditions of the credit is your minerals and your components cannot come from China. They also can't come from North Korea, Iran, or Russia, but China is really the, you know, the, the one that's, that's affected by that. There's several problems with that. One of the biggest ones being time is uh, the interesting factoid that I read about this is that if you look at the mining industry, the average time period between discovery of a mineral and production is 16 and a half years. Even if you'd find new deposits of lithium in Utah, which I think would be a good place to look for it, or, or Nevada, they don't just come online in two months. You know, it takes a long time. Even if you uh, streamline the permitting processes and do all the things to slow all this down in the United States, say you cut the time by half, say you cut the time by three quarters, you're still talking about multiple years before new sources are going to come online. So you need to look at the credit in the context of existing sources. And when you realize that in the existing structure, nobody can meet it, you begin to see that this may end up not being all that helpful. Well, and speaking of friends, our European friends have noted that this is a clearly a trade distorting subsidy. That's right. And likely a violation of our WTO obligations. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, take that, I take that with a bit of a grain of salt. I've been arguing with our good friend, John Magnus, about that, who says that, that it's a violation. And my reaction was, well, it probably is. I, I don't argue with him about that. But keep in mind that the automakers, particularly the European and the Japanese automakers, for the most part, have assembly facilities and production facilities already in the United States. So they don't have to move here. So they're kind of in the same boat that Ford and GM are in. That is, they can't meet the standard, but neither can Ford and GM meet the standard. So they're all sort of in the same place. Even if there's a violation, violations only matter if somebody complains. So who's going to complain? First of all, a government has to complain in the WTO. So the EU can complain. Japan can complain. Is the EU going to complain? I don't think they're going to complain unless Volkswagen and Daimler and others tell them they need to complain. And I don't see any sign of that right now. So listening to you, Bill, this is looking more and more to me like some member of Congress with a wry sense of humor and an interest in deficit reductions to create a big headline subsidy that nobody can qualify for. So you pay off some of that national debt. There will be many more chapters of this. We'll be talking about this for years, I suspect. It'll be interesting to see how it rolls out. It'll be interesting to see the extent to which companies are going to go to try to capture the credit. We've wrestled with this issue in, in on supply chains in other contexts. The biggest one being Mexico and, and autos, again, cars, but not the EV credit. There are all these new rules of origin designed to bump up domestic content in the uh, manufacture of North American cars. The issue there, of course, is that the, the car tariff is only 2.5%. 
So if the cost of increasing your content, the cost of reorganizing all your supply chains, the cost of building more domestic facilities is more than two and a half percent of the car, why bother? You know, it's cheaper just to pay the tariff. And if the cost of reorienting your supply chains to build a domestic EV is more than $7,500, what's the point? Why go after the credit? So we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see how the companies choose to respond. In the end, they make decisions that are rational for them. And it's not clear today what those are going to be. Fortunately, the trade guys never sleep. Never, ever sleep. Not while they're... Unfortunately, we are completely rational. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And not while EVs are up in the air. We can't possibly sleep with all this EV uncertainty. My neighbor has one. Yeah. And I watch it come and go. Uh, He took me for a ride in it once, which was interesting. He wanted to demonstrate the autonomous aspects of it, the hands-free aspect, which was terrifying because we were on the beltway. And he he took his hands off the wheel. And as we veered rapidly toward the sound barrier on the side, uh, he realized that he'd forgotten to turn it on. Oh, no. Uh, and so he recovered, but and so did I eventually. Oh, my but, goodness. But um, we've done work on autonomous vehicles separately. We have several papers that Jim Lewis and, and the Shoal Chair issued on those. It, it's coming along. There are autonomous companies, Cruise being one of them, seeking authorization from NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to put a bunch of them on the road, test drives. And in, in selected locations, there are already some out there, uh, small numbers. Cruise is applying for a larger number. If they get approved, this may be transformative. We'll see. You know, one of the things about some of these EVs that's really cool is they have this feature called dog mode. You can leave your dog in the car and the car engine's not running, but the air conditioning stays on and you can lock the doors and your dog can just like chill out while you go into 7-Eleven or like whatever it is you're doing. And the great thing about it is your dog is cool and happy when you get back and you return to a a fully air-conditioned car. The only problem with that will be the animal rights people who notice that the windows are closed, the dog is panting because dogs are always panting, and will break open your windows in order to make sure the dog has uh, room to breathe. But there's a great solution for this. When the car is in dog mode, a sign comes up on the console that says, this car is in dog mode. This animal is comfortable and happy. Do not break the window. <laughs> well, they think of everything now, Bill. I hope it works. Yeah. They think of everything. I'm going to stay old school for a while while all this sorts itself out. Yeah. Thanks yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't get my hands on an EV anyway as much as we've tried. It's just the, Are you going for an F-150 or are you going for a passenger car? Well, I wasn't going for anything. We were trying to get something for my son. And it was, I think we talked about this in an earlier podcast. It was insane. There's just, there's, there's no hybrids available. There's no EVs available. You know, what are you going to do? Our strategy on that with our older son was to get him the biggest, clunkiest, slowest car that we could find which ended up being a 1980-something station wagon with fake wood paneling on the side. Oh, those are the best. The family truckster. Yeah, I had, yes. that was my first car, too. I had, a, I had a wagon family truckster. It was the best. And we lived in an environment where not everybody did that. And it was a testimony to my son. I was, I was happy because my wife was explaining this to other people who were talking about the BMWs that they had gotten for their children. 
Right. And my wife was explaining this and there was this horrified look on someone's face and say, well, what did he say when you gave him this? And she said, he said, thank you. Yeah. Darn straight. Yeah. Mobility matters. So no that's doubt. for sure. No doubt. And there's nothing wrong with driving a Woody. So cool. That's absolutely right. Even if it's fake wood. Even if it's fake wood. That's the no question about that. You got wheels. You're cool. That's yeah. right. And it's a Woody and you can throw your stuff in it. And my Woody had this great compartment in the back that you could open up and you could fill it up with ice and just chuck a bunch of beers in there. It was great. <laughs> not, not good if you're 16 or 18. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it was for transportation to the event. And of course, I was the designated driver because I was the cool guy with the Woody. <laughs> Fair enough. Guys, great to be back. Great talking to you. We will be back next week to talk about more trade. See you then. See you then. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.